Why does God permit evil to exist? Why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? These are the questions that many people ask as they attempt to solve what we call the problem of evil. And for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the problem of evil, it's a paradox that's oftentimes presented by those who love to insist that the existence of evil is formal evidence that the God of the Bible must not exist. This argument is typically presented by the unbelievers who have come to the conclusion that an all-good, all-powerful, all-loving God, well, that kind of God would never allow evil to exist. Therefore, because evil does exist, well, then according to them, the God of the Bible must not. Now, it should be noted that there are actually several good ways to solve this paradoxical problem of evil. For example, we can address the problem of evil epistemologically, and we do this by asking, well, what's the basis for believing that we have the ability to objectively identify the difference between good and evil? You know, if, if, there, if there is no God that, that, that gives us a standard for determining right and wrong, well, then everything that would happen in, in this materialistic universe would be nothing more than matter in motion. If there is no creator God, then we're just stuck in this materialistic universe where things just happen. And you might not like the thing that happens, but to call it evil, well, you would need some sort of standard of right and wrong to say, well, that's evil and that's good. Otherwise, it's just stuff just happened. I didn't like some of those things, but that doesn't mean it's evil. If there is no creator God, then there's no objective basis for believing that there is such a thing as evil. Therefore, the person who raises the problem of evil as an argument against God, they're simultaneously demanding the existence of the God they're denying by insisting that there must be some sort of universal standard of right and wrong by which we determine something is evil. Moving away from this epistemological approach, we might also address the problem of evil existentially. You see, I have no doubt that we've all experienced different degrees of pain and suffering. And in the midst of the pain and the suffering, there are times when we might identify some of that as evil things. You know, there are times when we think that the suffering that has been forced upon me, it's because of somebody did something evil. It's for this reason that you know, many of us have wondered from time to time, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And listen, while it's not my desire to dismiss the deep depression that's tied to these, this, this existential question, we must not fail to realize that this personalized approach to this problem, it's actually based on a loaded question. The reason I say this is because the question why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? This question is preloaded with the assumption that we're perfectly good people who don't deserve anything evil to happen to us. Yeah, that's what we're asking. Why does God allow bad things to happen to me, a good person? Oh, we're good people now. Truth be told, every single one of us has sinned. We've all fallen short of God's sinless perfection. And not only that, but the heart of man is deceitful and wicked, and it's for this reason uh, that, the, uh, you know, that, that you know, people are prone to engaging in acts of evil. You might not know this about us. I'm guessing you do. People are prone to engaging in acts of evil. Therefore, rather than asking why God allows bad things to happen to good people, we should present the question with a bit more honest, honesty and, and a bit more humility. And we would do this by asking, why does God allow bad things to happen to people who oftentimes engage in acts of evil? Wow, all of a sudden, that question doesn't have as much punch, to, <laughs> does it? Well, why does God allow evil things to happen to evil people? Well, maybe because evil people do evil things and they invite it upon themselves. Maybe that's a solution. With all this in mind, I, I, I should remind you that there's really only one person who has ever been good all of the time. You know his name, Jesus the Christ. Jesus is the one who is the standard 
of sinless perfection and, and seeing how Jesus is the perfect picture of what it means to be good, well, then we might present the problem of evil by asking it in this way. Why did God the Father allow bad things to happen to his only begotten son who alone is good? That, that would be a fair uh, approach at defining the problem of evil. Why does a good God allow bad things to happen to his only begotten son who is good? With this question of mine, I want to spend our time today considering the way in which our Savior was actually sent to solve the paradoxical problem of evil, and he's done this by turning evil into good. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see, first of all, that our Savior solved the problem of evil by turning deception into deliverance. Secondly, we'll consider how our Savior solved the problem of evil by turning persecution into perseverance. Thirdly and finally, we'll consider how our Savior has solved the problem of evil by turning rejection into renaissance. Well, with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's actually turning the evil deeds of men into an opportunity for the goodness of God. As you're making your way to the 22nd chapter of Luke's gospel account, I just want to spend a second putting our text back into its context. You see, for the past several weeks, we've been considering the way that Christ Jesus was preparing for his crucifixion. And after he served the Last Supper, our Savior then led his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, and it was there where the Lord prayed for the spiritual strength that he would need to endure the full cup of the Father's wrath. At the same time, this was the same point in time when the evil scheme of Satan was being accomplished as Judas Iscariot, filled with Satan, led the temple guard there to the garden in order to betray our Savior Jesus. And with this as our focus, I want to pick up our study of Luke chapter 22. If you would, let's consider this evil act of Judas, beginning there at verse 47. Here Luke tells us that while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Now here in our text today, we find Luke, he's recounting this moment when Judas Iscariot betrayed our Savior, and he did so with a kiss on the cheek. And just to be clear, it's important for us to remember that Judas was one of the 12 apostles, and, and as an apostle, I mean, he was specifically chosen by Christ Jesus himself. Not only that, but Judas also became the deceptive disciple who secretly met with the religious leaders there in Israel. And remember, those religious leaders had given him 30 silver coins so that Judas might help them to locate the Lord Jesus at a time when our Savior wasn't surrounded by the multitudes who at that point in time adored our Messiah. They wanted to find Jesus when he was away from the multitude so that you know, they wouldn't be mobbed by the crowd uh, of adoring fans. And as we consider the Lord's response here in this text today, we should take a moment to ask, did Jesus know that Judas would be the one to betray him? Did Jesus know that Judas was the deceptive disciple? The reason I ask is, is because of the way that Jesus asks Judas uh, you know, uh, about, uh, about his betrayal. And if you would, let's take another look here at Luke's account, Luke chapter 22, verse 48. Here we learn that Jesus says to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Are you the one? Is, is it you? 
Now, as we consider this question, we might be led to believe that our Savior was actually surprised to learn that Judas was the one who was betraying him. And while it's true that Judas had secretly devised this plan to betray our Savior, it's also true that Jesus already knew that Judas was going to be the deceptive disciple. And to prove my point, I want to back up and consider a statement that Jesus made earlier in this same chapter. If you would, let's back up here in Luke chapter 22. I want to draw your attention back to verse 21. Here the Lord Jesus declares, Behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Now, here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's assuring his apostles that one of them there at the table was a deceptive disciple who would end up betraying him. Not only that, but he also informed them that this was all happening according to the predetermined plan of God the Father, that the Son of Man would go just as it had been determined. Without debate, Jesus already knew that he was going to be betrayed, and this was going to be according to the prophetic promises found in God's word. These prophetic promises, well, that includes the silver coins prophecy found in Zechariah chapter 11. Not only that, but also uh, this is according to the prophecy found in the 41st Psalm where we learn that our Savior's betrayer would be a trusted friend who would actually eat bread with him. And so just based on these prophecies, Jesus knew that he would be betrayed by a friend who he would eat bread with and who would betray him for 30 pieces of silver. I should also remind you of a question that Jesus presented in John chapter 6. It's in the middle of verse 70 where he asks, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? In light of this question, we know that Jesus was fully aware that one of the twelve was a devil. That word devil was translated from a Greek word, which speaks of those who engage in slanderous speech. And and while the the, the term devil, it, it comes from a Greek word, which was typically used as a title for Satan, the same Greek word, well, it was also used in reference to those who would make false accusations against others. Therefore, when Jesus referred to his betrayer as a devil, he was actually informing the 12 apostles that one of the apostles was actually a deceiver who was only pretending to be a believer. Now, with all this in mind, we can be certain that our Savior already knew that one of his closest companions would betray him and that he would betray him for 30 pieces of silver because he was nothing more than a slanderous deceiver. And yet, this still doesn't prove that he knew which of the 12 apostles would actually become the deceptive disciple. That being the case, we should take another moment to consider the question, was Jesus surprised? Was Jesus surprised when he discovered that Judas was actually the deceiver, or did he already know the identity uh, of this false apostle? In order to answer the question, we all need to look as far as John's gospel account. And so if you would hold your place here in the gospel of Luke, I'd like you to turn to the gospel of John, specifically to John chapter 13. See, it's here in the 13th chapter of John's gospel account where we find the apostle John. He's presenting us with his own eyewitness account of the Last Supper. And according to John, the Lord Jesus explicitly revealed the identity of his betrayer as they shared a private moment together there at the feast of the Passover. As we consider John's account, we discover here that Jesus knew full well which of the 12 would betray him. As a matter of fact, look with me here at John chapter 13. I want to begin reading there at verse 21. Here John declares, Most assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. 
Now here in these verses, we find John, he's recounting the way in which the Lord revealed the identity of his betrayer. And while it's true that Christ Jesus didn't come right out and explicitly the na- name you know, the deceptive disciple, well, it's also true that he left no room for John to identify anyone other than Judas. And what this means is that Jesus, he already knew which of his apostles would betray him. And yet, remember, Jesus chose him to be one of the apostles. So so the question is then, why? Why did Jesus choose Judas to become one of the 12 apostles if he already knew that Judas would become a deceptive disciple? Why did Jesus choose Judas to become an apostle knowing that Judas would, in fact, submit himself to Satan? And why did God the Father allow Satan to then come and indwell Judas so that Judas would go out and accomplish the evil scheme of Satan. In order to answer these questions, I want to consider something that Jesus said as they were making their way to Jerusalem. You would continue holding your place there in the Gospel of Luke. And let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 10. See, it's here in the 10th chapter of Mark's gospel account where we find the Lord Jesus. He's helping his disciples to understand that he was actually preparing to turn Judas' deception into deliverance. With this as the focus, I want to consider Mark's account, which is found here in Mark chapter 10. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 32, here we learn that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus, he's helping his disciples to understand that the Son of Man was actually sent to suffer the evil scheme of Satan so that he could then rise again and become the Savior of sinners like us. Now, it's true that God the Father could have protected his only begotten Son from the wicked works of evil men like Judas. And yet it's also true that the Father allowed bad things to happen to his only begotten son so that Jesus could then turn deception into deliverance. And with this as the goal, Jesus was sent then to provide a solution for the problem of evil. In order to further grasp how Jesus solves the problem of evil by turning the deception of Judas into the deliverance of sinners, I want to consider something that Paul wrote in the letter that he sent to the church in Galatia. So continue holding your place there in the gospel of Luke, and let's turn to uh, Galatians chapter 1. As you make your way to the first chapter of Galatians, I just want to take a moment to consider the skepticism of those who insist that the God of the Bible must be too weak to stop the evil things that occur in this world. They typically present the argument something like this. They'll say, well, an all-loving God and you know, an all-omniscient or all-knowing God who then uh, allows evil must not have the power to stop evil from happening. Therefore, uh, God must not be all-powerful because he, because he just can't stop evil from happening. Now, what these people fail to realize is that our creator has all the power he needs to forcefully stop the problem of evil today. Our creator, the one who spoke creation into existence, also has the power he needs to forcefully stop evil today. The evidence of this can be seen uh, in the Lord's decision to destroy uh, uh, all humans except for Noah and his family uh, at the time of the flood. That, yeah, he caused a worldwide flood by which he wiped every person uh, from the face of the planet save for you know, Noah and his family. So yeah, God could have just completely wiped out everybody on that day if he, if he wanted to. I should also remind you about the way that the Lord dealt with the depravity there in Sodom and Gomorrah as he rained down fire and brimstone upon those sinful cities. You don't think that God could just do that, you know, 
across the entire world. Uh, the God who spoke creation into existence could t- turn around and with a word just wipe out the entire universe. But that's what he wanted to do. In light of this, we can be certain that our creator has all the power he needs to solve the problem of evil just within a, a split second. Not only that, but I should also remind you that God the Father has promised to solve the problem of evil uh, at the time of, of the judgment when, when he casts every unrepentant unbeliever and every fallen angel into the everlasting uh, lake of fire. And the people who complain about the problem of evil, they don't like that solution either. Oh, that, that, you know, what, what kind of God could send anybody to hell? Well, the kind of God that solves the problem of evil, right? But they don't like that solution. They don't want that solution. And, and listen, I, I'm not thrilled about that solution either. I, I, I have a hard time imagining people suffering in hell for the rest of eternity. And yet, I also believe that God has to solve the problem of evil and bring it to an end at some point in time. Thankfully, between now and then, he's offered a different solution. We can rejoice in knowing that Christ Jesus came to deliver sinners so that we can escape the final solution for the problem of evil. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in Galatians chapter 1. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 3, here Paul writes, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now from this, we can see here that the Lord Jesus came to suffer the pain and the shame of the cross so that sinners like us who have oftentimes engaged in evil acts might be then delivered from this present evil age. And while it's true that God the Father sent his only begotten son to endure the evil scheme of Satan, it's also true that he sent our Savior to come and solve the problem of evil by turning the deception of Judas into the deliverance of those who will simply trust in the cross of Christ. And just to be clear, so when Paul informs us here that Christ Jesus gave himself for our sins... He was actually helping his audience to understand that Jesus offered himself up as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. He offered himself, he gave himself up for our sins. He was offering himself as a substitutionary sacrifice so that we could be saved. With that being the goal, you know, he allowed Judas to betray him, even chose Judas to become one of the twelve so that he would be crucified for the sins of the world. And in this way, the justice of God then is satisfied there on the cross as he becomes our substitutionary sacrifice. The justice of God is satisfied on the cross through the sacrifice of our Savior. And at the same time, Jesus remains just while simultaneously providing a way to justify those who will trust in him. Jesus solved the problem of evil by turning the deception of Judas into an opportunity for our deliverance. And while it's true that our Savior solved the problem of evil by turning deception into deliverance, it's also true that our Savior solved the problem of evil by turning persecution into his perseverance. Now, to explain what I mean, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 22. Here we find the apostles. They're now trying to protect Jesus from persecution. I'd like you to look with me here at Luke 22, verse 49. Here again, Luke writes, when those around him saw what, he was, what, what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Now, here in these verses, we find the apostles, they're now attempting to protect Jesus Christ from the very persecution that Christ came to suffer. They're trying to protect him from the predetermined plan of the Father. Now, to be fair to them, I'll remind you that it was early in, earlier in that same night. That's when the Lord instructed them that it was time for them to start packing heat. 
As a matter of fact, it was back in verse 36. There the Lord Jesus instructed those who had no sword. He instructed those who had no sword to go ahead and sell their outer garments and buy a sword. That that wasn't just an order given to some believers. He, He said that to all of his disciples. If you don't have a sword, sell your outer cloak and go buy a sword. Not only that, but it was there in verse 38 where we learned that two of them were already carrying swords. And now here in our text today, we find the apostles of Christ, uh, they're reacting to the, to the arrest of Jesus. And, and they did this by asking, hey, is this the time? Is this when you want us to strike with the sword? Now, as we consider their question, it's important for us to remember that the apostles here were still operating under the assumption that Christ Jesus was, a, uh, was about to go and claim the throne of King David. That's why they thought, you know, they, they were heading to Jerusalem and they finally arrived in Jerusalem. So now they're waiting for the orders. We're going to take the crown. We're going to take the throne. We're going to install Jesus, you know, as, as the new king of Israel. And so I can only imagine that this is why they thought this is the time to strike with the sword. This is the time, you know, for us, you know, to bring forth this revolution. What they were failing to understand was that Christ Jesus came to first endure the cross before receiving his kingly crown. It was the cross, then the crown. They, they still didn't understand the cross yet. They're thinking it's time to take the crown, right? Wrong. Listen, when the Lord Jesus encouraged them to acquire swords, it wasn't because he was hoping to go on the offense in securing the throne there in Jerusalem. That wasn't the point. I'll remind you in the study last week, I pointed out that he was telling them to acquire swords because once the dispersion happened and they were sent into the Gentile world, they would be traveling roads where there were thieves and robbers and, you know, they were going to be accosted along the way. They would need a, a, a a means of self-defense so they could protect their families as they were dispersed into the Gentile world. It wasn't so that they could engage in this revolution here uh, against the leaders who the father was allowing to come and persecute Jesus. No, he wasn't asking them to try to protect him from persecution. No, this was the persecution that he came to suffer so that we could be saved. Jesus later confirms this in John chapter 18. It's there where he's standing trial before Pontius Pilate. And it's, it's verse 36 where Jesus declares, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. <clears throat> Christian, listen, we haven't been called to go out and convert by the sword, so to speak. We haven't been called to rise up in a violent insurrection in order to establish the kingdom of Christ here on the earth. We haven't been called as the dominionists believe, you know, to usher in the kingdom of Christ, that Jesus won't come back until we get our act together or something. That's silly. We've been called to preach the gospel of grace so that sinners might trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. That is our great commission. Those are the marching orders to go and preach the gospel and make disciples leading them to Jesus Christ. And while I do believe that the Lord has given us permission to acquire weapons for the purpose of self-defense, we haven't been called to use those weapons to go and, you know, gain more ground for Jesus. Nope. And we most certainly haven't been called to try to defend Jesus Christ against persecution. Because listen, oftentimes when people try to defend Jesus, they end up cutting off the ears of those that they're trying to present the gospel message to. With this in mind, let's take another look at Luke's account here. Found in Luke 22, beginning at verse 49, Luke writes here, when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword And notice in verse 50, one of them struck the servant to the high priest and cut off his right ear. He didn't wait for, he didn't wait for the go ahead. He didn't wait for the confirmation from Christ. No, he just started swinging. Now Luke was gracious in the way that he redacted the name of this apostle with, you know, the the apostle that uh, reacted with, you know, divisive uh, or decisive violence, I, I should say here. 
Luke didn't give us his name. And, and also Mark and, and Matthew left out his name. Thankfully, we have the Apostle John. You know, the, the Apostle John had no problem giving us this information. And, and it's in John's gospel account where we learn that, yeah, it was Simon Peter. Yeah, he gave both names. Simon Peter was the one with the sword. And after drawing it, he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Now, now Peter was a man of action, no doubt. And, and he sprung into action quickly. And I don't think that he was aiming for an ear. I believe that Peter was coming across the throat and the servant Malchus ducked, you know, in order to avoid the swing and lost an ear in the process. I believe he dodged the attack and lost his ear. With that, I want to take another look here at verse 51, because here we learn that Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. The Lord Jesus here not only stopped Peter from continuing with this attack, but he also healed the servant of the high priest by reattaching his severed ear. And if you'll allow me the liberty of spiritualizing this situation, I want to take a moment to ask, am I like Peter? Are, Are you like Peter? Are, are we quick to react to a situation with real, without really waiting for the Lord to guide us? Are we so busy trying to defend Jesus that we're simultaneously using the sword of a sharp word, which ends up cutting off the ears of those who we think are attacking our Savior? With this question in mind, I want to consider the encouragement that Peter then went on to present later after he had some time to process all of this. It's in his first epistle. If you would hold your, hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, I want to turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. And as you make your way to the third chapter of 1 Peter, I just want to take a moment to remind you that Christ Jesus didn't need Peter to protect him from persecution. Please believe me. You know, when they came to arrest him and they were like, we're looking for Jesus, and Jesus said, I am, they all fell to the ground. Just, just stating the name of God to, you know, to the, to the people came, that came to arrest him, they, they all fell to the ground. Jesus didn't need Peter to protect him with the sword. The Lord even confirmed this when he told Peter to put his sword in its place because if it's the Father's will, he could call down 12 legions of angels to come and protect him from persecution. Think about that. If you can call down 12 legions of angels to protect you from persecution, Peter's little sword, uh, (laughs) it, it, it was unnecessary. knowing that he had come to endure this persecution, knowing that he had come to persevere this persecution, he told Peter, put your sword away and permit this to happen. With with all this in mind, I want to consider Peter's revelation after he processed this situation. It's found here in 1 Peter chapter 3. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 14, here Peter declares... Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, Those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. According to Peter, you know, those who want to defend the Lord against the verbal attacks of those who defame the name of our Savior, we must remember that we've been called to give our defense with meekness and fear. In other words, you know, after taking some time to think about that whole situation there in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think Peter realized that he was wrong to cut off the ear of Malchus. And so rather than cutting off the ears of those who might hear us with a sword of a sharp tongue, uh, listen, we've been called to present apologetic arguments with gentleness, uh, 
and respect. You see, Jesus doesn't need us to defend his good name. But when people want to ask why we believe in Jesus and when people want to question our faith, we ought to give that defense. We ought to give that apologetic argument. But yet we should do so with gentleness and respect. In this way, the Lord will use us to turn evil into good as we learn how to persevere persecution in the same way that our Savior endured persecution. To further explain my point, we should take some time to consider the way in which our Savior was sent to solve the problem of evil by turning persecution into perseverance. But this is the focus. I want to consider the way, the, the way that Paul explains it in his letter to the church in Rome. If you would continue holding your place there in the Gospel of Luke, and let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 9. See, it's here in the ninth chapter of Romans where we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand that the God of the Bible has been patiently enduring the evil of this world this entire time as he prepares to save those who will trust in Jesus Christ. That's right. He's been you know, suffering long with the sinful things that people do. And the reason why is because he is more determined to save sinners than he is to solve the problem of evil immediately. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in Romans chapter 9. Look with me there beginning at verse 22. Here Paul asks, What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. From this, we can see that, you know, according to Paul here, the Lord actually has a purpose in the evil that he allows. And yeah, there is coming a day when he's going to make his wrath known. There is coming a day when he's going to make his power known. But at this present time, in this evil age, he's enduring with much long suffering the vessels of wrath which are being prepared for destruction. Rather than rushing to the day of judgment, God is willing to endure the evil of people like Judas, despite the fact that he already knew exactly what every person would do. He already knew how Judas would betray his only begotten son, and yet still uh, sent Jesus to go and call Judas to become one of the apostles. You see, the Father sent our Savior to persevere the persecution of the Jews who falsely accused him so that some might be saved. And he called our Christ to persevere the persecution of the Gentiles who wrongly crucified him so that he could solve the problem of evil in his time frame and according to his perfect will. He's solved the problem of evil by persevering the persecution that unbelievers brought upon our Savior Jesus. Not only that, but I should also remind you the point that the Apostle Peter went on to make in 2 Peter chapter 3. There he declares, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. From this we can see that the Lord continues, even today, to endure the evil deeds of sinful people. And the reason why is because he's patiently giving every sinner an opportunity to receive his free gift of grace. Would he be just in completely destroying every evil person today? Well, of course. And that day is coming. But today he's being patient. So that some might be saved. And Christian, listen, the Lord is calling us to persevere the persecution of evil people as well. So that through our perseverance, we might help unbelievers to repent and trust in Jesus Christ. And in this way, our Savior is solving the problem of evil, one conversion at a time. Now, this brings us to our third and final point, because listen, our Savior not only solved the problem of evil by turning deception into deliverance and by turning persecution into perseverance, 
But our Savior has also solved the problem of evil by turning rejection into renaissance. And to explain what I mean by this, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 22. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's submitting himself to those who had come out to arrest him. And if you would, let's pick up our study of Luke 22, beginning at verse 52. Here Luke tells us that Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come uh, to him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. And here in these verses, we find our Savior, he's actually submitting himself to those who had come to arrest him uh, while simultaneously calling them out because, you know, he had been teaching there at the temple in Jerusalem, uh, you know, for probably, probably weeks at this point in time. And not once did they approach him, not once did they try to seize him or arrest him. But here they are coming out in the middle of the night. They're at the Garden of Gethsemane with clubs and swords in hand as if, as if Jesus was some sort of violent insurrectionist or some sort of criminal. This was all just, you know, political theater. And yet the Lord submit himself to these evil men. You see, the Lord Jesus knew that this was their hour. This was the hour when the Old Testament prophecies about his betrayal would be fulfilled. This was the right time and season for the enemy to rise up against our Redeemer according to the prophetic promises presented in the Old Testament. This was the predetermined moment when our Messiah would begin to solve the problem of evil by allowing the religious rulers of Israel to come and arrest him. And listen, this was not only the predetermined time for the religious rulers to rise up against our Redeemer, but this was also the hour when the evil power of darkness would be granted limited authority over our Savior. To prove my point, it'll help you to know that the phrase power of darkness is found there at the end of verse 53. That phrase is translated from two Greek words, which can also be rendered dominion of darkness or authority of darkness. And seeing how the word darkness in this context is being used in reference to the spiritual darkness of Satan, well, then it seems to me that God here is permitting Satan to have power and authority, the, the authority that he would need to accomplish this evil scheme to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ and have him crucified. What this means then is that God permitted Satan to accomplish his evil scheme by granting him this limited power and authority over the Lord Jesus. And while it's true that Satan intended to accomplish his evil plan by killing Christ Jesus, well, it's also true that God the Father had already determined beforehand to solve the problem of evil through the same sacrifice. What this means is that the Lord already knew that the religious rulers of Israel would eventually rise up and reject their Redeemer, and yet it was their unrighteous rejection of Jesus Christ that actually set the stage for this renaissance of righteousness by which God would then bring about the restoration and the reconciliation of all things. Now, in order to understand how the unrighteous rejection of Jesus would then result in a renaissance of righteousness, I want to take a moment to consider a vision that the Apostle John presented in the revelation of Jesus Christ. So uh, turn in your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 21. And as you make your way to the 21st chapter of Revelation, I should take a moment to point out that the renaissance that I'm referring to is most certainly not Beyonce's new album. Beyonce's new album, Renaissance, is just mental poison that nobody should, uh, you know, self-inject. And, and I would just say protect your kids from this garbage as well. But we're not talking about that Renaissance. The word Renaissance can actually be traced back to the Latin word renaissir. And it might interest you to know that the Latin word renaissir was actually used of that which is renewed. So we're talking about a Renaissance or a renewal and with this definition in mind, I want to consider the way that the sacrifice of our Savior actually results in an everlasting renaissance by which everything is renewed. Let's consider how the Apostle John describes it here in Revelation 21. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1. 
Here John writes, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And here in these verses, we find the apostle John describing this this vision that he received about the day when the Lord will establish his millennial reign over the earth. And as we consider this day when the Lord will completely restore this cursed creation, we must not forget that God the Father was the one who was using the evil scheme of Satan to actually solve the problem of evil so that he could bring forth the renewal of all things. He, He was using the evil scheme of Satan to reverse the curse. And with this as the goal, the father then used the rejection that Jesus experienced there in the Garden of Gethsemane to actually set the stage for the everlasting renaissance that we're going to enjoy there in the new Jerusalem. In this way, we can see then that God has a perfect plan for solving the problem of evil. And while I'm certain that every Christian today is looking forward to this renaissance of righteousness, I should also point out that the word renaissance can actually be traced back to an old French word, which literally means rebirth or reborn. With this definition in mind, I want to take a moment to point out that the Lord Jesus was willing to endure the rejection of those who came to the garden to kill him. He was willing to endure that rejection so that those who would then trust in him could experience the personal renaissance that occurs whenever a repentant sinner is reborn or born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. I like the way that Paul explains it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is actually one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. And it's in the final uh, section of this chapter where Paul says, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christian, listen. The Lord Jesus bore our sins upon the cross so that we could receive the imputation of his righteousness. Our sins were imputed to him there on the cross so that his righteousness could then be imputed to those who trust in him. And listen, he would have been just. He would have been righteous to condemn us at the very moment of our first sin. The very first time we ever sinned when we were little babies, for me it would have been probably day one, right? God would have been just to just go, we're done. He could have. He could have solved the problem of evil by getting rid of me on day one. But he didn't. He could have solved the problem of evil by getting rid of you at the moment of your first sin. But he didn't. You see, our creator had a better plan for solving the problem of evil, and it's a perfect plan because it results in the relational reconciliation for those who trust in Jesus Christ. And not only that, but at the very moment of faith, listen, we experience a personal renaissance as we become new creations in Christ Jesus. The old things 
They've passed away. They're wiped clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. And all things become new as we wait for the new Jerusalem. Finally, I should remind you of a challenge that then Paul presented to those who have become new creations in Christ Jesus. It's actually the final paragraph of Romans chapter 12, where Paul declares, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, now it's not always possible, but if it is possible, Paul says, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Christian, listen, those of us who have become new creations in Christ Jesus... We are now being called to serve our Savior as we help him to solve the problem of evil in the way that we respond to our enemies. Will there be people who do evil things to us? Yes. Should we respond in kind? No. We are not to respond evil for evil. That just perpetuates more evil. We've been called to overcome evil with good. And as we overcome evil with good, we then help the unbelievers around us to experience the personal renaissance that occurs when sinners embrace God's free gift of grace by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, as we begin to wrap up this message, I just want to take a moment to point out that there is coming a day when God is going to forcefully solve the problem of evil by casting every fallen angel and every unrepentant unbeliever into the lake of fire. But until that day, the Lord has decided to permit the sinful decisions of those who are using their free will to engage in acts of evil. He's permitting this right now. And with that being the case, we can rejoice in knowing that our Savior, even through this allowance, even through this permitting of evil, that our Savior came to turn evil into good. As a matter of fact, our Savior has turned the deception of Judas into de the deliverance of those who trust in him. Our Savior has turned the persecution that he endured into the perseverance that provides every sinner with the time to repent. And our Savior has turned his rejection into a renaissance that we experience as believers become new creations in Christ Jesus. To sum it all up, you know, I would remind you of something that <clears throat> Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8. There he declares, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. That's right, our Savior is able to turn the evil schemes of Satan into opportunities that work out well for those who love the Lord. And while I have no doubt that there are some here today who are even, even today wrestling with the problem of evil, many of us today might be wondering, why is God allowing these bad things to happen in my life? And if that sounds like you, I encourage you to remember the, the Lord has a perfect plan for the evil that he allows so if you're wondering why God is allowing evil things to happen in your life, well, I just encourage you to remember, God works all things together for the good to those who love him. And according to his perfect purposes, we can rejoice today in knowing that he's able to turn evil into good. Let's pray.